This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Oh, we should plug the live show though, right? How do, where do they go? You need to give them a, an address to go to. Uh, Vox.com slash weeds live. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. It takes you right to the Warner Theater, D.C. Boom. Where you can see Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff, and more do the weeds. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined uh, as usual by Ezra Klein and also by our colleague Yohi uh, Driesen. Where's Sarah Cliff? Uh, I don't know. You know, she figured, got this healthcare bill happening. She'd probably just go on vacation for no real reason. Uh, <laughs> Sarah got married. So we're all so very happy for her. Congratulations. Congratulations, Sarah. To an unmarriageable post-industrial worker of some kind. Uh, <laughs> it's those of us who, who saw last last week's episode. We're really glad to have Yohian as a guest. Uh, Going to get to talk a little uh, national security, which um, I've heard from a number of you. Uh, you want to hear more about, but we, we're too ignorant. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna work on that. But first, if you like listening to the weeds for free uh, on your phone, you might enjoy even more listening to the weeds in exchange for money, but live and in person at the Warner Theater on Tuesday, April 18th. That does sound like a hell of a deal. It's amazing. A weeds live show. Uh, it features Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff, and more, i.e. me. Um, <laughs> if you go to vox.com slash weeds live, you can get full details on, on ticket prices and, and availability. Um, it should be really good. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be really excited. We're going to uh, meet uh, some people who have VIP tickets and, and see everybody in charge. It's going to be fun. Uh, it's it's good to get out of the house and do things too, not just not just sit around lonely listening to podcasts. Like Speaking of getting out of loser. the house and doing things, you might also enjoy uh, Vox is having its second unconference. It's a conversation with about 150 people, including a lot of very very fascinating speakers and policy experts about the first hundred days of policy under Donald Trump. It will be in D.C. It's an invite only conference. We want this to be a real conversation that is uh, pushed and planned by the, the people at it, so we're keeping it pretty small. If it sounds interesting to you, you should go to conversations.box.com. Again, conversations.box.com. Full details there. You can apply, uh, find out all you need to know. We did one of these last year. It was one of my favorite things we've done um, as a site. It was really meaningful to meet all of you. It was really, really great discussions. I learned a lot. I think other people there did too. I think if you are listening, you will enjoy that. So check out conversations.vox.com. Um, all that said, today on the weeds, we're going to, in addition to national security, we're going to talk about the the big changes to the healthcare bill, uh, and we also have a white paper, a genuine NBER paper that I'm actually pretty excited about about whether internet use actually increases political polarization. Spoiler, I'm not telling you yet, but Matt. What are we talking about in national security? Yeah, so, you know, during the campaign, I, I think Trump and, and foreign policy was was discussed a lot. I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, sort of frequently charged that, you know, you have this like intemperate sort of ignorant guy blustering around. He's going to get us all killed. And conversely, he made a big push that, you know, ISIS was like running rampant and, you know, Muslims were going to murder all of our children unless we elected him. Um, and you see in the exit polls um, a lot of interest in these issues and sort of a sharp divide. People who said they were interested in foreign policy sort of overwhelmingly favored Clinton, whereas people who said they were interested in terrorism kind of overwhelmingly favored Trump, that they, they framed the issues differently. We haven't talked about this much uh, on the weed since it, since it came. But, you know, this past week, we, we had this like kind of weird blow up with the British surveillance agency over over Sean Spicer saying maybe they had 
bug Trump Tower. We had uh, Angela Merkel came by for a sort of awkward meeting. And then the next morning, Trump was like tweeting angrily at her that Germany owes money to to NATO. And, and I remember after that, I spoke to a, some people I know, social Democrats in, in Germany and uh, who are hoping to win an election and who um, don't really want to increase defense spending. And uh, to them, this was like manna from heaven, right? Like Donald Trump, who everybody hates, like tweeting angrily at Angela Merkel is like like a gift to them to like not do what the United States actually theoretically wants them to do. And I guess I wonder, I mean, is this something people should really be, are these like just antics we can laugh off or or does this matter? So first, I'm happy to say that five months into being a Vox employee, and now I really feel like I'm a Vox employee being uh, the poor man's stand-in for Sarah Cliff. We're all the poor man's stand-in for Sarah Cliff. <laughs> and, uh, but to, to take your second point first, Right now, Trump, I think, is still on the stage where we can kind of laugh at him a little bit because some of the stuff doesn't yet appear to have true significance. But when we get to an actual crisis, like a no joke, there's somebody shooting at us, we are shooting at them, then the fact that he, one, lies, two, doesn't back down from those lies, and three, loves to alienate every ally we have, then that becomes a big, big deal. Right now, what you're seeing this past week was kind of fascinating. So Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, who everyone thought is, here's another far-right guy, kind of like Trump, loves to use Twitter— did not do as well in the election as people had feared. Then you have leaders come to the U.S., Trump insults them, and they immediately get a boost. Theresa May was slightly more popular when she went back to England. Angela Merkel, much more popular. There was a headline of leader of the free world meets Donald Trump, uh-huh. which Oof. I think kind of nailed it in a lot of ways. But what you're seeing that's coming is, can he ever back down? I mean, the stuff about the wiretapping of Trump Tower generally, let alone the new stuff about the British, their version of the NSA functionally being involved in it, is empirically false. Every Republican who's been asked has denied it. Yesterday, the director of the FBI began his hearing saying a Trump tweet was wrong and ended it by saying a different Trump tweet was wrong. So, What do you do in the middle? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was, there's uh, a lot of others. <laughs> it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Spoiler alert, those were wrong too. But when you have this many people say it's false and he just can't ever back down, to me, that's the part about Trump that I find most interesting. It, you know, he lies. We know that. He exaggerates. We know that. But he can't ever acknowledge having lied. And then just briefly, the postscript of when he said, don't ask me, asks Fox. So Fox said, we can't back this up. This is crap. And then they suspended the person who said it in the first place. So one, the idea that he can't back down. Two, the idea that he says, just ask Fox. And then three, when Fox took it back, he still can't. It's all kind of remarkable to me. So this stuff actually strikes me as scary. And what you're talking about with the Ask Fox is that he got apparently got his wiretapping tweet because he saw something Andrew Napolitano said that he misunderstood on Fox. Or I, I don't fully understand the chain of telephone here. But he blamed Fox. He is the president of the United States of America. He's got people he can ask. And, you know, I remember when Trump was elected and there was a lot of talk about normalization. Right. There's a lot of discussion of, you know, how what would happen if you normalize this guy? And I think the way people thought about that had to do with the way he spoke about Muslims and, the, and what he said about women, certainly on the on the tapes. But this week has felt to me like a real example of normalization. It has felt to me like even though there are headlines, obviously, we've written about it and, and every other major publication has written about the fact that the, the director of the FBI and the director of the NSA came and said everything Donald Trump has been saying recently about wiretapping is not just wrong, but it's based on nothing. It's just garbage that he spit out for no evident reason except to change the subject. And people are noting that, right? It's a it's a big story. But I don't think that we are almost capable, like emotionally capable 
of putting ourselves back in the space we were in two years ago or even, you know, years before that and try to imagine, like, how would we have thought about another president who came out and because he saw something on Fox News tweeted that his predecessor is running an illegal surveillance campaign of him. And then when demanded – when asked to defend it, said, well, I think the Senate should investigate it. And then when they say nothing happened, he says, well, it's Fox News's fault. This seems really scary to me and it goes to something I'd love to have you expand on a little bit, which is in – one thing that we actually need with the president is to trust him, mm-hmm. not to agree with him or her. Right? You don't always have to agree with the president, but particularly when you're dealing with a foreign crisis, you actually need to trust them. And, and I think you can go too far on this, right? George W. Bush was, was wrong and or lying depending on who you, how you want to look at it when he said there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Obviously, Lyndon Johnson in the Gulf of Tonkin. It is not the case that presidents haven't lied about national security before. But Donald Trump really, really plays it loose with information. Obviously, appears to be fooling himself before he fools anybody else. And that feels to me very scary in a context where we actually need to trust the guy about what is happening and how we should respond. Yeah, I, mean, I think George W. Bush is an interesting parallel because in some ways the analog would be if George W. Bush was asked, hey, you, the U.S. has lost 5,000 people in Iraq. And he said, no, we haven't. And just denied the existence of that number, which Donald Trump has done with statistics. You know, he said, I just don't buy that number. And if you were asked, let alone then to, hey, analyze, so George W. Bush, what's going wrong? Will you change course? We can't imagine Donald Trump doing any of that, right? We can't imagine Donald Trump acknowledging the existence of those numbers being real. We can't acknowledge him saying, this is wrong. I've made a mistake. We're shifting course. And, and I agree with you. The, the issue of trust with him is remarkable because it's not clear if we can trust him. It's not clear who he trusts. You know, the heads of the intel services, the heads of the intel committees who are Republican, heads of it, all say, this is false. This is not true. And he doesn't trust them. And there was a moment yesterday in the hearing that I found fascinating it, it was sort of lost in the middle of it a little bit. But afterwards, Sean Spicer was asked about the hearing, uh, the, the White House spokesperson. He said, when asked about collusion, he said, there's no evidence, stop digging. When he was asked about the Trump wiretapping claim, he said, there's no evidence, keep digging. And that's kind of, to me, Trump right now in a nutshell. He will keep digging on something false. He does not want to dig on something true. And if you're the average American and all you hear is this barrage of denials, I think it's very easy, even if you follow the news, to get lost in it. So, I mean, I guess a question I have is like, where, where should we look, you know, concretely for, for things to start mattering? Because stuff stuff is happening abroad, right? I mean, we have uh, North Korea is doing some provocations. Uh, we had this slightly odd Rex Tillerson trip to, to Asia where he he just sort of said like, well, the past 20 years of policy have failed. So we'll come up with something different and then uh, didn't talk to any reporters or explain what he meant. Um, and we've got a plan to put put more troops on the ground in Syria, I, I believe, um, and to sort of – I don't know exactly how, how to characterize this, but the, but the feeling was that when Obama was president, these kind of military actions in the Middle East were being like run out of the White House, right? That that this was the, the critique you heard from people uh, in the Pentagon especially was that like – the National Security Council was like looking over their shoulder, uh, micromanaging everything. Um, Donald Trump doesn't seem to have a patience to micromanage anything. Um, so, so like the the gloves are coming off in in some sense. Um, but what you would always hear, you know, from the Obama White House was like, you know, I understand like pe- people don't want to be micromanaged, but at the same time, like we are responsible if American soldiers die or if civilians get massacred, and so. You know, we want to know what's actually happening. Um, and, and now we seem to be in a in a situation where 
a lot more may happen with with a lot less attention from from the center here. Yeah, I mean, the, the Yemen case is, is actually really illustrative to a point you just made. Every American president, going back to Carter, if something went wrong militarily, even if they had literally nothing to do with it, said ultimately, I'm responsible as commander-in-chief. Compare that with Donald Trump. A raid in Yemen went badly. John McCain said it was a failure. Civilians died. Children died. A U.S. Navy SEAL died. And Donald Trump's response wasn't, I take responsibility. It was, it's the fault of the military. And he had personally approved this raid. He had personally approved it over dinner in what was said to be a 30-minute meeting. And ultimately, it's his call. He is the commander-in-chief. But that kind of grates just the idea that they're sitting over dinner. He's like, yep, go ahead with it. I think attacking him for the approval is not fair because... The military presented it. That's their job. His job is to approve it or deny it. He approved it. But to blame the military, I've never seen military friends of mine be more offended by anything dating back to the Iraq war than that. And the idea that a commander in chief would say, there's a tragic loss, the fault of the military. It's, It's so dismissive and frankly, so cruel to say the military mourns. And now you're being told, hey, it's your fault. It just makes it worse. What's interesting is that there's kind of the two foreign policies, right? There's the foreign policy as tweeted by Donald Trump, which bears no resemblance in the foreign policy as currently being carried out by Rex Tillerson or by Jim Mattis. Right now, the deployment happening militarily that matters most, although not getting much attention, is the U.S. sending 5,000 troops to Eastern Europe, to Poland. And there was a real question of Barack Obama committed to it. Would Donald Trump do it? And if you're Donald Trump trying to suck up to the Soviets and to the Russians and to every other phrase you could use to describe Vladimir Putin and, and his government, you'd cancel that deployment. And right now, they aren't. So if you're someone worried about NATO and worried about Donald Trump being too close to Putin, that's kind of a good sign. But if you're someone trying to figure out what the hell does Donald Trump think about NATO, the fact that Rex Tillerson just said he won't go to the next meeting of the NATO foreign ministers, it's just baffling, right? So it's foreign policy by tweet from the president, foreign policy carried out by the secretaries running the different agencies, and nary the twain shall meet. There are actually two things I want to follow up on there. One, uh, to go back to the Yemen piece for a minute, because I think this is actually important. Uh, I don't remember if it's you who told me this, or I read it, or maybe I'm wrong about it, which if I am, you can you can tell me. But that after the Yemen raid went bad, and after Donald Trump disowned it, there were actually new processes put in place so that he would, more of this would be just approved within the Pentagon, and he would have more distance from it. And, and I found that extraordinary, right? And, and on two levels. One is the... I run an organization much smaller than the United States of America, right, than the federal government and all of its power. But when something goes wrong, the first impulse of somebody who runs an organization is not to increase the layers of plausible deniability between you and the thing going wrong. It's to try to put into place structures where you can make sure it goes right in the future. Now, it doesn't mean you want to go all the way to micromanaging it, but my God, for the impulse to be to immediately push it back further. So if it happens again, it is easier for you to blame the military because then people won't say, well, you approved it. That was a very extraordinary moment. And I thought it was a real piece of insight. So on my uh, on my um, interview podcast this week, I, I had this discussion with Molly Ball, who's at The Atlantic and is a fantastic, fantastic political reporter. And, and she was saying that all presidencies are ultimately defined by crises. They are defined by um, moments the president did not create but had to respond to. And you can think of this going backwards. You can think of with Obama just how much of the first couple of years had to do with, say, the BP oil spill was a, a big deal for him. The financial crisis was a big deal for him. For Bush, the financial crisis, 9-11, Katrina. And something that I think we're seeing as an impulse within Donald Trump is that when things go wrong, he doesn't go deeper into running the government and running the response. He tries to get further out from it. There's a real sense of alienation, which I think is fascinating, a real alienation between him and the bureaucracy that he is putatively in charge of. And, you know, day to day, as you as you were saying, these might be antics now, but if something begins actually going awry, 
And it is his job to handle it. And he gets frustrated at the way it is being handled, as presidents often do, because hard problems are hard to solve. It is not obvious to me that he is going to respond in a way that we really even have any context for, as opposed to cutting the agency almost completely loose. Yeah, and and I think that he almost comments on the presidency Mm -hmm. as compared to running it. You know, Barack Obama was mocked for being this kind of professorial, like analyzing it from the outside as if he didn't have agency. But Donald Trump is tweeting about his own government in real time. Yeah, but Obama did this. I think this is a great point. But Obama did this with the media narrative. What Obama did primarily was play, play press critic all the time and, you know, play political pundit. But he didn't have that around the – like the one thing he didn't do that around was the actual bureaucracy. He did it around politics as a more general point. But, you know, when something went wrong at the VA, he may not have liked it, but it was his fault. Totally. I, I agree completely with the point. I think the weird similarity is the criticism from the outside. But I think that the terrifying difference is the Donald Trump pulling away. You know, many people around the world, including, I should say, my wife who works at the Pentagon, are very reassured that the Secretary of Defense is Jim Mattis and this feeling of like, and it's not fair, I think, to Jim Mattis to say Jim Mattis will keep the world safe. Like Jim Mattis will keep the world safe from Donald Trump. To a degree, he is a very sane, competent person. But at the end of the day, he's not the president. And I think that you're right when you have a structure where the president not only doesn't want to know, but is actively critical of what's happening. That's what's amazing to me. You know, you can have a president, and you, just to play out the kind of hypothetical, who might publicly stand by what he, what he said and did, but privately asked for an investigation, asked his aides to sort of say what went wrong, even if he didn't ever go public with it. And Trump's the opposite. Trump has just bashed the military, bashed the intel services, bashed the Hill. So there, there's no willingness to hear the information, and there's no willingness to act on it. And that's legitimately scary. You know, the, a phrase I never thought I would utter in my life to defend Donald Trump for one second, but I'll utter it to defend Donald Trump for one second. Giving the military more control, the Pentagon more control, tactically, isn't necessarily a bad thing. A criticism I thought that Obama got that was somewhat fair was, why are decisions about every drone raid in, in Yemen being approved by the White House when they don't necessarily need to be? I don't think that in itself is problematic. I think it's problematic when you have a, a president who doesn't want to know the details before or after, who doesn't really care about the details. That's where I think it really gets dangerous. Well, I, I guess th- this is my question. is like, what in practice is this going to look like? I mean, even relatively optimistically, because I think a, a lot of people, you know, take the view that, as you said, right, that like Jim Mattis is a competent, well-respected person. He's known internationally. He's he's well-regarded in the Pentagon. Um, and so he's not going to like blunder in the way that you might worry that, that Donald Trump would. Um, but also he, he left the government uh, years earlier under, uh, under the Obama administration uh, over – you know, there were some real policy disagreements, right, about the sort of U.S. stance in, in the Middle East. And and things are going to going to change, I, I think. And, and can you sort of help people understand, like, what is the world going to look like in a sort of dramatic, less micromanagement from the White House, less uh, hand-wringing, uh, maybe even a president who, who doesn't sort of care in a particularly fine-grained way what's happening in, in Yemen and Iraq? So I'm, I've gotten to know Jim Mattis over the years, especially when he was running Central Command. He is as smart as he's said to be. He does read as often as he's said to read. I mean, that's all true. He hates the nickname Mad Dog. So never Donald Trump would say, Mad Dog Mattis. Jim Mattis despises that name. He, he genuinely hates it. He's like a regular how, dog. How did he it's, get it? Real quick. I don't want to yeah, no, no, but I, I think it's an mad. interesting question. No, it's just like, you know, Marines love to pound their chest. And, and when they're not sending around new photos of other Marines, they like to sort of take on the, this very macho image. That was his kind of call sign within the Marine Corps early on in his career. 
But that was never an accurate description of him. He's not a shouter, a yeller. He's not profane. He reads constantly. He's not married. He's kind of monkish in his personal life. Uh, is it a? I'm just curious no, about this course. guy. I had a friend like this um, who had a who had a name that was like a mad dog style name, but he had that name because of how much he didn't fit it. Yeah. Is it? A, I always assume because I don't know the answer here that it, it you know that he was at least considered this way by the Marines. Is it a joking name? Is it a sort of counter signal on that he's monkish and bookish and like oh mad dog is in with his you know journal articles tonight? <laughs> I, you know, I, I wish I could say the Marine Corps had that kind of sense of humor, that ironic, wry sense of humor. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, I don't think he got that way. I think he got it just because really genuinely Marines like giving each other tough guy names. So, you know, Ezra might be tough boss or something similar uh, as the commander in chief of Vox. Um, and but, from now on, you must all refer to me exclusively <laughs> as. Cue the presidential music. But Jim Mattis, he does not live up to the name, but he does live up to the reputation. Um, you know, Matt, to your point, I think Mattis... He's the reason why troops are still going to Eastern Europe. Right. Donald Trump has already said he's the reason why, despite Donald Trump's very frightening love of torture, which just parenthetically, that is really scary to have a president say, basically, I love torture and it works, which even George Bush wouldn't use the word torture. Jim Mattis is the reason we don't do that. He's the reason why we still have troops going to Russia. Jim Mattis, when he was, you know, to your question, with Obama, the, the fight was over Iran. Right. Jim Mattis was far more hawkish. He thought Iran was the biggest threat there was to the Middle East. Weirdly now, he is more dovish on Iran than Donald Trump. And when there are people whispering in Donald Trump's ear, do something militarily against Iran, it's Jim Mattis, Iran hawk, who's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Which, you know, to your point, Ezra, from earlier about how these things would have been unimaginable a year ago, two years ago, this is a small one, but this would have been unimaginable if you were writing about the military two years ago. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com slash weeds. Let me ask this question, very much the same question Matt asked, but about Rex Tillerson. Because Tillerson came in and there was consternation about the fact that he was CEO of Exxon. You know, a lot of people from the energy community, from the global warming um, fight, were very worried about his appointment. There was concerns about his closeness to Vladimir Putin. But the thing you always heard about Tillerson was all that may be true. But unlike Donald Trump, he's a calm, sensible guy recommended by Robert Gates and Condoleezza Rice, that he knows what he's doing, that he's run a gigantic multinational corporation that you know he's actually uh, that he's actually a very good pick, and in another context from another president, you'd actually be be happy to see him. And it has seemed to me from afar uh, that his beginning as Secretary of State has been unusual. 
Uh, he just went on this trip. He only brought a reporter from the Independent Journalism Review, which is a sort of new conservative website. Uh, he talked about how he doesn't need the press. He's been very quiet. Uh, there's apparently a lot of confusion at state just because he's not giving very clear directives. He's quite understaffed at the moment. What is your impression of Tillerson at this point? And, and, and is it different than what you thought it would be? Completely. He's been invisible in a way that I don't understand. I mean, there are a couple of things I think worth flagging with him. One, he wanted to bring in a deputy, Elliot Abrams, because Elliot Abrams knew the State Department. Donald Trump personally vetoed it. And if you're Rex Tillerson, you're not used to having someone say no, right? You don't become CEO of Exxon, massive Exxon, if you're not a tough, strong guy. And Donald Trump just completely steamrolled him. Right now, Rex Tillerson is both irrelevant in a way that I think is astounding for Secretary of State and invisible, and seemingly either unwilling to or incapable of stand up to Donald Trump on behalf of the State Department. Friends of mine who work there say it's just a ghost town. I mean, they literally have nothing to do because he's there. He has no deputy. There are no assistant secretaries of state. There's just nobody running the place. So there's no guidance. So if you're sitting, let's say you're trying to communicate to the embassies in Russia or countries that really matter what they should say or do, there's nobody telling you what you should say or do. And it's a con- he has said he's okay with the State Department budget being cut by a third, which is staggering. And somebody put this out on Twitter, and I agree with it. He's acting like he's a middle manager brought in to cut costs. Oh, and that's, that's interesting. That's kind of all he's doing right now. That, and, and if you were thinking about Rex Tillerson, who is this wealthy, this successful in business, why would you want the job? Right? The job right now just seems like it sucks. You've got no one to help you do it. The people you want were vetoed. You're not given any guidance about what you should say. You have no one to sort of help you through this. And you're either embarrassed by the president when he's in Asia saying about North Korea and about China, we're going to work with the Chinese. And then Donald Trump tweets, China's not doing enough. That doesn't help. He apparently was not involved when Donald Trump shifted away from the idea of a two-state solution to Israel-Palestine, which was this massive historic shift in U.S. policy. The Secretary of State wasn't involved in the decision. So if you're irrelevant and invisible, why not go back to retirement? You know, even this this point about the staffing is, is worth sort of delving into because I think I think a lot of people don't necessarily recognize this. But, you know, all appointments are done, legally speaking, by the president. You know, and so that means that just because um, you're a secretary of energy doesn't mean that you get to pick who the different assistant secretaries are. It it comes out of the White House. Uh, At the same time, you know, typically you would give some level of deference or input to, uh, you know, what it is that the actual secretaries want. And this is also something that at least wise people bargain about before they accept jobs, right? So when Barack Obama was asking Hillary Clinton to come on as Secretary of State, she demanded as a a condition a a significant amount of latitude in picking her own team there because she wanted to put, you know, some of her own people in place. A a couple people, I mean, I think Sidney Blumenthal specifically was vetoed by the White House. Uh, But I heard from people who had difficulty getting low-level jobs at the State Department during Barack Obama's first term because they had supported Barack Obama in the primary, right? Like that was a that was a problem for you, getting work in Hillary Clinton's State Department. And that was because she had a lot of clout, you know, like Obama really wanted her on the team. Tillerson does not seem to have leveraged himself in, in any kind of way, right? I mean, there was a time when everyone was really worrying, like, Who's Donald Trump going to get as Secretary of State? And he kind of pulled this rabbit out of the hat, right? Like a guy who was not part of the Republican Party foreign policy establishment who had trashed him 
but who did have support Mm -hmm. from Bob Gates and Condoleezza Rice, whose experience was outside of government but seemed relevant. Uh, There just like aren't a lot of people who could have checked those boxes. And he didn't use that opportunity just as he hasn't managed to – he could have fought against these proposed budget cuts at state, right? Like we know senior military leaders don't really think that cutting the State Department budget by a third is a good idea, right? A savvy bureaucratic fighter could have could have worked on that. And he just like – seems like he didn't, right? I mean it seems strangely weak for like the CEO of a giant company. Yeah, and, and it's really genuinely mystifying to me. This is not somebody you – know, John Kerry wanted to be Secretary of State his whole life. Right. And this was like the thing he dreamed of doing. Rex Tillerson never dreamed of being Secretary of State. Rex Tillerson dreamed of running Exxon. I reread Steve Kyle's book about Exxon, which is fascinating. And when you read it, you come away knowing that Exxon people stay for life. You know, they come in as young, uh, young executives and engineers like he did, and then they just stay and rise. So he was wealthy. He was successful. He didn't need or want this job. But if you're going to take it, presumably you want to do something with it. And right now he's not. Same with Jim Mattis. Jim Mattis was not eagerly his whole life wanted to be Secretary of Defense. Donald Trump asked him. I think he had a sense of duty because people were saying to him quietly, you need to keep this guy under wraps. His personnel choices were also vetoed. It was just last week that he finally got nominees for Deputy Secretary of Defense and other political jobs. Right now in the Pentagon, there are no political appointees, none, except not even a spokesperson. You think about Bob Gates when he stayed over between George W. Bush and and, uh, Barack Obama. Matt, like you were saying with Hillary, a condition of him staying was some of his people stayed, including his spokesman, Jeff Morrell, because he trusted Jeff Morrell. Right now, there are no spokespeople for any executive branch agency. So when you talk about the war on media, it's not simply Donald Trump saying fake news, which incidentally he said to a German reporter, right. which was just surreal. A German reporter asked a really good question. He said back to her, fake news. And there's an article today in the Post about how she's now become a hero within, within Germany. But fake news tweets is, are one thing. But if you have no spokesperson at the Pentagon, State Department, Homeland Security, Justice, on, 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 and he doesn't, that's how you control information. Everything goes to Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer lies or yells at reporters, and that's the end of it. And that it sort of comes back in some ways to Rex Tillerson. If you're Rex Tillerson and you're sort of invisible, part of the reason why you're invisible is you have no spokesperson. And it, it kind of re, it feeds on its own dynamic, its own tension. I thought a, a telling thing that, that Tillerson said in, in the interview with – I forget her name, the, the one uh, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron McPike. Aaron McPike. So he's talking about his sort of anti-media philosophy. And he's talking about how when he was CEO of Exxon, he did a lot of deals with tough regimes and that it was sometimes easier to get those deals done when it could be done sort of quietly and behind closed doors. And that, you know, makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, then you have a question about America's role in promoting press freedom, other things like that. But a lot of American diplomacy deals with regimes that aren't necessarily so tough. Right. I mean, our relationship with Mexico or Germany or the United Kingdom or, you know, a million other countries, Japan, South Korea, it all makes a a difference. And part of what seems odd to me about this is that international relations between democracies sort of has to happen in public. Right. You can't just do everything through sort of backroom deals and, and wink nod understandings, because what. Japan does with the United States with regard to North Korea, it has to be defensible in Japan by Japanese political figures. And this is where it seems to me that the the whole Trump apparatus is not – it's like it's not going to work, that you can have 
you know, Mattis deploying troops to Poland to sort of say, look, we are supporting NATO, we're defending Central and Eastern Europe. But if everybody's understanding on the ground in Europe is that the Trump administration does not support this alliance, then that is it its own kind of reality, right? I mean, there's only so much you can do with troop deployments. That NATO sort of needs to be sustained by actual political commitment from democratically elected figures. And Trump is playing exclusively to his own politics, it seems to me, without thinking about, you know, how does any of this like work abroad? Yeah, Tillerson's quote, and I'm glad you flagged it on dealmaking, it's kind of illustrative and, and a sort of not in the way probably that he intended. A lot of diplomacy is maintenance. It's not sexy at all. It's just sort of like all of us making sure things in our house are not broken. Right. You know, you're checking with allies. You go visit them and you, you do press conferences. It's not terribly glamorous, but it's also not terribly difficult. If all you see it as is something where you make deals and otherwise you don't talk, you're missing the whole point of being secretary of state. You're the face of the United States. When Mitt Romney was under consideration, we know that Donald Trump, who, who likes to cast his cabinet like a television show, we know this. He thought Mitt Romney looked like a secretary of state. That's part of why he, he liked him. Rex Tillerson may or may not have that look, but Donald Trump, at least at the beginning, seemed to understand that you needed a face of America and that that look was important. Rex Tillerson right now doesn't act as a face. He doesn't do press conferences. He doesn't meet with foreign leaders. In South Korea, he had this very weird moment where it was, they were supposed to have dinner with the South Koreans. Then they said he couldn't do it because he was too fatigued. Then he said, no, 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 he was fine. But it was all optics for the South Koreans, basically saying, oh, now of allies, our, our allies lied. It's just a bizarre, self-inflicted wound. But not understanding what diplomacy is, that it isn't just making a deal in a moment of crisis, but it is just kind of keeping things humming along. It means you don't understand diplomacy, which is a problem if you're the Secretary of State and the top diplomat for the United States. And one where it's not like the president is like going to do that lifting, right? I mean, that's that's like the big difference, right? Like Mattis has done an enormous amount of work on the sort of intergovernmental relationship and like making people not be excessively alarmed by slightly alarming Donald Trump tweets. But we don't have the State Department doing putting forward a public face of the United States that's more consistent and more reassuring than these sort of sporadic tweets from Donald Trump. I mean, I think that's right. You know, cabinet secretaries don't typically take the job thinking that their whole job will be acting as a spokesperson for Donald Trump, trying to explain away what he just said. But that's what Jim Mattis right now, that's what he's doing, what Mike Pence is doing. Part of what they're doing is just going to different security conferences, different capitals and saying, basically, ignore that guy with the orange skin and the, and the small fingers in the White House. It's all fine. NATO's fine. We support traditional things. We're not going to kowtow to the Russians. We're not going to kowtow too much to the Chinese. That's their job right now is kind of damage control. And that's not what a vice president typically does, what Secretary of Defense typically does. Arguably, it is what a Secretary of State does, but Rex Tillerson doesn't seem to want to do that. And it, it's just fascinating and very, I think, scary. A friend of mine just came back. He's a business person who travels a lot through the Middle East and Africa. And I asked him what he hears about Donald Trump. And he said two things. And one made sense to me, one didn't. And each were depressing. The first one was confusion, as we'd kind of all expect people around the world to say and to have as a feeling. The other was pity. He said that he was talking to people from Zimbabwe to parts of Africa that are not democratic countries who are basically saying, it's okay. You know, you'll make it through this. It's hard and you'll have a hard few years, but, but we know it's okay. And just having people from impoverished developing countries sort of pat him on the shoulder to reassure him, he said that in his life, he had never seen anything quite like it. And that's, that's scary. That is very, very depressing. Um, all right, Yochi, thank you so much for, for being on the weeds today. I'm, I'm grateful you stopped by. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thank you. As much as it feels sacrilegious to talk about this without Sarah here. Uh, I, they are trying to sneak a repeal bill 
through the House of Representatives with no revised CBO score while Sarah Cliff is on honeymoon. I think they are. According to Kevin Brady, they are going to revise the CBO score. Oh, really? All right. So here's what's going on. Um, last night, uh, we are speaking here on when? Tuesday? What day is this? This is Tuesday. Tuesday. So on Monday night, the Republicans brought out the manager's amendment to the American Health Care Act. And this is basically a package of changes they're going to make to the bill to try to get it through the House. I would not say any of the changes are huge. To, to run through a quick list of them, you have a change to deductibility rules that is basically built to give the Senate $85 billion roughly so they can increase subsidies for older Americans because Republicans have been stung by uh, the the correct claims that this that their legislation will make health care completely unaffordable for, for older Americans. Um, this $85 billion might help a bit. It's not going to change that dramatically. So, but that's probably the biggest change. The other things they're doing is they are accelerating the repeal of Obamacare's taxes by a year, all the way to retroactively uh, canceling some capital gain taxes. So, as you joked to me earlier, maybe we'll have some some job creation from this a couple months ago, which would obviously be nice. They are creating um, some different rules in Medicaid. Couple important things there. They are allowing states to take the Medicaid money as a block grant. Currently, what they're trying to do is move Medicaid to a per capita system so that you get a particular amount of money for every individual person of every individual category, child, disabled adult, et cetera, in the in the plan. Allowing states to take the money as a block grant means that they could choose to have the money, all of the money they'd be expected to have is one lump sum that they could do more more kinds of things with. This is a, a long time. A hope of some conservatives. They're also changing some Medicaid rules around reimbursement. They are not allowing states to sign up for Medicaid uh, between now and 2020 to sign up for the Medicaid expansion. So they have a couple things like that. There's a, a weird thing that that is getting uh, the, that is getting called the Buffalo buyout, which is a change to Medicaid reimbursement that would help county governments at the expense of state governments. This is a particular uh, desire of the New York delegation. For reasons that maybe Matt can explain, but but I have not yet dug into. Uh, but that's really just a buy-off for, for for a couple members of the House. There there are a couple other things scattered here and there. Basically, what I would say is that you could have imagined Republicans trying to solve one of three problems uh, as they change their bill. One problem is that their bill is going to, according to the Congressional Budget Office, push 24 million people into the ranks of the uninsured, put millions or tens of millions more than that into high, the kind of higher deductible care that Republicans know is unpopular and have been criticizing in Obamacare and also do all this while pretty unpopularly giving massive tax cuts to the rich. That is not what voters want. It isn't what they asked Donald Trump for. It isn't what polling shows they want. It's what the bill does. The bill is already very, very unpopular. So you could have imagined Republicans trying to make a more popular bill. They are not doing that. The second thing they could have done is they could have really worked on the construction of the bill. Uh, pretty much every health policy expert who has looked at this thing has said this is not well built. It is just not well designed bill. This is true on the conservative side. You have Cato is very concerned about how the Medicaid rules are built. You have Ovik Roy and many others who have made the point that for all that Paul Ryan says, he is worried about implicit marginal tax rates for the poor, which is he's worried that under Obamacare, as you get uh, as you make more money when you're poor because you lose subsidies, you're actually not incentivized to get a job and move up in the world. The way the bill works right now, because of the huge shift when you get off of Medicaid, it is a huge marginal tax rate, a huge implicit tax rate for, for the very poor who make more who make enough money to jump off of Medicaid. They haven't fixed that. 
Bob Lazuski, who's a very smart consultant in the healthcare industry, has, has argued that the way this bill is designed is going to destroy insurance markets. It'll really push healthy people out of the pool. They haven't fixed that. So this is a bill that pretty much everybody thinks that if you actually tried to implement it, if you actually passed it and tried to implement it, it would create total havoc. Uh, you could imagine them hearing that and saying, OK, well, we've really got to go back to the drawing board in case we do have to implement this. They did not go back to the drawing board. What they're trying to do here is a targeted buy-off of just enough House Republicans to get it out of the House. They're trying to give House Freedom Caucus and Republican Study Committee folks a little bit of you know sweeteners around Medicaid. They're trying to give the New York delegation this Buffalo buyout. They've got a, a couple other just random things thrown in here. They're just trying to get this thing through the House. Uh, so far, House Freedom Caucus people have not been positive on this. Mark Meadows, who runs, who leads the House Freedom Caucus, said – these were not major changes. We wanted major changes. This won't pass. Justin Amash, who's been critical of the bill, also said he doesn't think it will pass. It's very hard right now to handicap that. But there are very few people who have looked at it and said, well, this has really solved my problems with the, the legislation. The, the, I mean, the most telling thing in this whole mess is the $85 billion magic asterisk because you don't legislate that way traditionally. Like what happens in the legislative process is that different members have different views on what they would like the legislation to say and they bargain with each other over it. And, you know, sometimes they, they reach a mutually agreeable compromise. Sometimes they don't. But you talk about like what you want the bill to say. In this case, they don't have time to hash it out. Wait, hold on. Can I push you on that? Yeah. Just because I think we say – Nobody is making them do it this fast. No, no, I have all the fucking time in the world. I mean, this this is what I mean. They have – Paul Ryan has decided that his objective is to pass an Obamacare repeal and replacement bill on Thursday night. So having decided that that is what he's doing, everything else is rotating around that fixed point, right? And so that includes – they threw this thing in that New York State Republicans think that they want, although I I think they may live to regret it. They are accelerating the tax cuts in various ways to just sort of amp up the like, hey, guys, this cuts taxes for for the right. And a bunch of members who are worried about losing their seats or worried about getting yelled at by their constituents were like, whoa, you know, I saw these analyses that this is going to be disastrous for old people. So Ryan has written in there – like, hey, Senate, do something to help out with the older people. And you could talk about, well, what is that going to be, right? Because it's obviously $85 billion isn't nothing. You can use that money to make this bill less bad for older people. It's not enough money to hold older people harmless. And so the question is, is which older people are you going to help and how? Will it be targeted at lower income older people? Which is if you don't have enough money to help everybody, you might think, well, you should target it to the people who need the most help. But that violates the whole underlying philosophy of this construction. So you could give it to everybody flat, which is sort of along the lines of what Paul Ryan is thinking. But that's not going to solve the problem, really. So it's difficult. And you would normally have a process of hashing this out. Instead of doing that, they're sticking with the schedule. They are basically telling members that this gives them cover to, like, say that they are addressing the issue. Uh, The CBO is not going to be able to score a provision that doesn't say or do anything. But because it is unscorable, it will let everyone say – 
oh, that CBO score Democrats are complaining about doesn't take into account this like magic fix that I got. But it just dumps it all on the plate of the United States Senate. And that seems to be the overarching goal here at this point, right, is get a thing past the House. Now it is not their problem anymore. That way, if it dies, it dies in the Senate. If it lives in the Senate, it will definitely be in some different form and we can deal with it then. And it's it's true that you don't need to worry about what the details of this bill say because this bill as written is not going to pass the Senate and is not going to become law. But there's also something, you know, mind-bogglingly irresponsible about asking people to vote for a piece of legislation on the grounds that you don't need to sweat the details because the bill isn't going to pass. And you have Donald Trump saying that, too. I mean, we've had multiple reports of him coming out of meetings with House members or even speaking at rallies and being like, don't worry about it. Like, this is going to have to change some more and and we'll work it out then. He said last night, Monday night at a rally in Kentucky, that he's going to change the bill so it includes a prescription drug price negotiation. And like he's not. He's he's not going to do that. Uh, It's not in the legislative text. He's not doing anything to make that happen. There's no process underway through through which it will happen. And they're just kind of moving forward blindly. This New York thing, I, I think, is a great example because like what happens there is that New York State has this weird Medicaid rule where they make county governments kick in to the sort of state Medicaid program. And then because the federal government matches state and local Medicaid spending, you get this kind of uh, three to one leverage of state dollars, right? So that the state will spend one dollar, then the county kicks in a dollar, then the federal government kicks in two. It's not really great policy in in my opinion, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Upstate, more conservative counties really hate this because they are conservative counties and they want to keep taxes low, but they have all of this like unfunded mandate Medicaid spending. Um, So they – just like a longtime Republican gripe in New York politics is the state should not be allowed to do this. So the bill just kind of says that counties with under 5 million people, uh, which is to say like not New York City, um, cannot be made to to get this money, which is fine, I guess, if like literally the only thing you want is to maximize the odds that some property tax bill can pass in, in some random county in, in Binghamton. Uh, but there's no guarantee. The only literal thing this does is create a multi-billion dollar hole in the New York State budget. And you have Republicans from New York State agitating for this um, because they cooked it up like sometime on Sunday. They didn't like gather state hospital leaders and stakeholders and like do a real process and like talk through, is this actually the change that we want? It's just like an idea that was kicking around. And so so they put it in the bill and, you know, we'll work it out later. And it's – So much about this process is stunning, starting from the fact that like everything the bill does is the opposite of what Donald Trump promised, that it's then hard to be like stunned by the smaller little epicycles inside it. But it just makes you wonder, like if this passed, like what would happen? Well, that that to me is the, the, the core of all of this. They have absolutely no idea what would happen if this passed and they don't want to know. I mean, that, that has always been the fascinating thing here. They literally don't want to know. 
they don't want to subject this bill and, and this construction to a lot of outside analyses. They don't want to have a long process where people come and do hearings and say, hey, if you did this, I run a hospital system in western Illinois and here's what would happen to my hospital system. They don't know what would happen to rural hospitals in this bill. Nobody's looked at that in very great detail. They've not had time to look at that in very great detail. The, everything about this is a process where they have mistaken a political objective of passing something where you could say repeal and replace Obamacare with a, a policy objective, which is passing something that makes people's lives better. And, and the process itself, you, you, you call it mind-bogglingly irresponsible. Right before you said that, I was thinking in my head the words breathtakingly irresponsible. When Sarah wrote a, a great piece on this a couple weeks ago, but if you just took everything Republicans said they hated about the Obamacare process, everything – the speed, the fact that Democrats were pushing forward on a bill that by the end was reasonably unpopular, the Cornhusker kickback stuff, the fact that uh, it was a pretty partisan process. I mean you just go down the line and they have taken every single piece of it, reconciliation, and supercharged it. It's like they have gone back and looked at what they said and what they criticized and used it as a playbook. And what they've ended up with is a process that is much, much, much worse than the Obamacare process. I mean just one example is it. Despite the fact, by the way, that the Obamacare bill had existed in many more formats before it really came into existence as a piece of legislation, the time period between Nancy Pelosi introducing the draft in the House and an initial passage in the House was five months. It wasn't three weeks, which is what Ryan is trying to get to. And you know they had a lot of CBO scores and preliminary CBO scores and different kinds of CBO scores. There were really significant committee processes where tons and tons and tons of amendments got put forward. The whole thing, it's just – this is not what you do when you're trying to build legislation. I mean I have talked to Republicans about this and their theory, the thing that they'll say is, look, like we don't think – we are not persuaded we can survive a process. This bill will survive a lengthy legislative process. But the reason they are not persuaded it will survive a lengthy legislative process is it's not a good bill. They don't think as people hear more about it, they will like it more. They don't think that as – Members of Congress have time to talk to hospital administrators and doctors and nurses and people that they're going to become more inclined to vote for it. One thing that really did happen in the Obamacare process is that as much as the bill was under continuous fire and attack, people actually did get bought into it uh, in the Senate, in the House. It got changed in ways people like. People thought the thing had been stress tested. And even with all that, it was still a very hard implementation process. It was still pretty unpopular. Uh, but But they really did – do the work so people felt, hey, I've been heard. Um, we have done you know, the best we can under the circumstances and, and, and there's something here. There's something here that I can feel you know, not 100 percent on but reasonably confident on. One thing that I think is interesting about the process Republicans have chosen here is it is it, – it really reeks of cowardice. It reeks of fear that this actually is not good legislation and yet while it's doing that, I don't know what they think is going to happen on the other side because what will happen is if you pass bad legislation is it will go badly. And, and they saw this. I mean Republicans, I thought they were wrong about the Obamacare process, which was you know, a 13-month process. It had a lot of run-up to it. I mean I thought it was a pretty open – I think there's a, a lot to be said for it. But let's say you don't believe that. I thought they believed what they said about this and that after it came out that they believed that – Obamacare's subsequent problems, the very, the disastrous rollout of healthcare.gov, the unpopularity of the bill, the problems in certain markets. I think they believed that this was 
part and parcel of passing a bill they thought was rushed and done in the dead of night and done over the public's objections and with no popular support. And so that whatever mistakes they made, they weren't going to make that one because they looked at Democrats and thought, ha ha, look, you guys really got yourself in at this time. And it turns out they looked at that and said, that was a great idea. Let's triple it. Let's make it much, much worse. So uh, something, an interesting nuance I, I just picked up on this morning is that I think most people are aware that lower income parts of the United States um, are generally more conservative in their politics and thus that that Obamacare has this sort of slightly odd income transfer away from Democratic core areas toward more conservative parts of the country. Um, that turns out to not be true if you look at it at the House district level, that if you look at uh, Center for American Progress has this sort of coverage loss district by district thing, um, which, you know, of course, is designed to sort of like amp up the heat on, on Republicans because even like a low number sounds bad. Um, but if you look at their list of the 100 districts that will have the largest coverage loss, only 25 of them are represented by Republicans, which is, you know, fairly remarkable. If you flip to the Senate, though, it's exactly the opposite, right? And the states that are going to suffer the biggest coverage loss under under Obamacare repeal are mostly Republican states with mostly Republican members of Congress from them. So that's an important sort of tension between House and Senate here that, that you're looking at that you see a lot more evidence from – uh, different sides, but from from Dean Heller, from Susan Collins, from Bill Cassidy from from Louisiana, to an extent from uh, Rand Paul from Kentucky, um, from uh, Rob Portman from Ohio. A lot of Republican senators are clearly expressing some level of like, well, what if this happens? Type worry. Whereas House Republicans, it seems like many fewer of them like have that concern in a sort of a concrete way. And so there's instead this obsession with the kind of like theoretical objections of the House Freedom Caucus, like does this really repeal it enough? Um, but it at least seems like if some version of this bill passes, we're going to have to have a much more reality-focused type conversation in, in the Senate where the main concern is really going to be from senators who are afraid that if repeal goes through, people in their home states are going to be devastated by it. And so they want some kind of reassurance that like the bill will actually work. Yeah, I think the absolute worst thing that could happen to Republicans is this bill passes. It It is just <laughs> – it would be such an unmitigated disaster for them. It is going to take every problem that people have about the system now and make it so much worse, so much more high deductible care, so much less affordable coverage. You're going to have a lot of markets where premiums are going to skyrocket and Republicans will own every piece of it with a bill unpopular from the moment it launched. They will no longer be able to run against Obamacare. Like it is a total disaster on every level and they are just driving it forward. I do think something interesting here is – I did this project, I think it was Friday, and I was working with our, our intern, Jacob Gardenswartz, and we sort of compiled everything Donald Trump has said publicly about healthcare since this bill was released, like every single thing, every tweet, every speech, every interview, every, just everything. And I, I read all that, and I do not think Donald Trump knows what is going on here. 
I one the one thing that's really striking is first just how narrow his talking points on healthcare are. He'll say the same set of things about Obamacare every time. Then he'll say the same like couple set of things about about his plan. Primarily, he'll talk about how Democrats won't help him no matter how good the plan was. If it was the best plan in the world, Democrats wouldn't help him. It's really such a shame. He doesn't understand why. It really makes him sad. But one thing that is fascinating is Donald Trump has been persuaded by Paul Ryan. And you can tell when he talks about this and he doesn't really understand why. But Paul Ryan has told him that you cannot do tax reform before health care, that in order to get to tax reform, you have to get health care reform passed. And so, you know, Trump, who's kind of said, I would have preferred to do taxes first, will say, look, for very complex reasons, statutory and otherwise, it's very complex, way too complex. Like you just, you got to do health care first. We just got to do health care first. And it's not true. You don't have to do health care first. You just don't. Um, what Ryan is persuading Trump of, the, the the basic argument he's making, is that if you can repeal Obamacare's taxes, then it is easier to do revenue-neutral tax reform that includes tax cuts because you will already have cut taxes in Obamacare so that the sort of total level of taxation in the economy can be can be lower. And that allows you to design a tax system that you know looks better than, than the one we currently have. That's only, I think, partially true under the best of circumstances because you're, you're really just double counting there. But you're going to have to use the savings you got from Obamacare in that structure. And I don't think it's going to end up with very much for you. But Trump, I think, does not really understand what is in this bill, is not at ease when he talks about it, seems very confused in the promises he's making about it, continues to say it ensures affordable access for all, continues to talk about it having lower deductibles, more competition, and is just clearly completely unprepared politically for what will happen if this thing actually goes into effect and everything blows up. Here's this one line um, where he says, I don't even recognize a bill they're talking about in the press. That's not the bill we're passing. No, that is. That is the bill you're passing. Like you are being fooled. And it's funny because Breitbart and some of these other very pro-Trump outlets have actually taken on this sort of as a rallying cry that Donald Trump is being fooled, that the wool is being pulled over his eyes, that Paul Ryan is like leading him down the path of darkness because there's a kind of like the king can't be wrong. Only his advisors can be evil. But but nevertheless, uh, I don't think they are prepared. I don't think the the guy who is currently lobbying for the bill most effectively, Trump, knows what he is lobbying for or is going to be ready if this thing comes into effect and blows up, which it would do. It's interesting to me. Breitbart initially was like taking that line. Uh, the healthcare bill has just disappeared from their website. Um, so I think initially my read was that like, oh, there was some kind of factional war inside the White House and Bannon was trying to like back channel through through Breitbart to like see what's going on here. Um, but all that coverage has like gone away now uh, as if all the key players in the White House team are now on board with this program, it seems to me. Um, but I wonder about blowback inside the White House. I wonder about if this passes – and we start moving to a Senate process and there are just not nearly as many senators. And like if Tom Cotton gets to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Donald Trump where he can speak to him for 25 minutes and he's like, President Trump, I supported you. I supported your pledge to not get rid of Medicaid expansion that will cost X thousand Arkansas people. like." What are we doing here that like Trump may see that the bill doesn't do what his staff 
is telling him it does, or may even see that this sequencing thing does not work the way Paul Ryan has told him it does. It it, it seems it's very dangerous. I mean, more than the floor mechanics of the process, putting legislation together, which is based on this like shadow boxing, where we Trump spoke to a, a House um, GOP conference today and very openly seemed to be like warning House members that they could face primary challenges if they didn't vote for this bill, right? So like Trump's salesmanship is critical to getting this passed, but it is completely divorced from any of the provisions of the bill. Nobody knows who is lying to whom about this. Um, Typical House Republicans are really dumb, which seems to be like helping sort of drive this forward to some extent. They're they're really uninformed on health care. Yes. They have very strong opinions about taxes, but just health care, there's just like very little preexisting expertise in the Republican House conference. But also they're not asking anybody. Sure. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a lot of people you could talk to. Like if you want something we have not read a single story of is like an undecided House Republican decided to get on the telephone with the American Hospital Association and like try to walk through this with them or the fucking Cato health team or like anybody. Right. It seems like they don't care. They don't think it's important to like know what the law does or says. They're just boxing around these concepts of like, is it really repeal? Or something, right? Like metaphysics. Um, the senators are always just a little bit better informed than House members. And I wonder when when it leaps to that phase. I, I also wonder, interest groups have like weighed in on this bill generally negatively, but they also don't seem to be taking it very seriously. And I think one thing that like all the stakeholders ought to consider a little bit more here is that if this goes through in anything resembling its current form, it's going to completely destabilize the politics around healthcare in the United States, like on a permanent basis. If it turns out that doing coverage expansion in an industry friendly way costs you like populist points, and hurts you with the Democratic base and that then the industry stakeholders do not fight to maintain the coverage expansion, like they're done, right? Like it may take 100 years for universal health care to come to America if this repeal gets through. But when it comes, it's going to be like with bayonets and torches, right? Like full communism, Bernie Sanders, like they're going to give Medicare to all and they're not going to raise any taxes because like it's just going to be all provider cuts or all of the taxes will be on billionaires or, or, or something like that. Because like the whole point of the Affordable Care Act was to put forward universal coverage in a way that would be acceptable to like the main stakeholders and the main players in the industry. And if those industry players cannot obtain any kind of Republican Party buy-in for sustaining the system, then like they're going to all lose out, it seems to me, in, in the longer term. I think that's right. The, the only thing I'll add is I've heard a lot of them are focusing their lobbying on the Senate. Right. We'll just have to see how powerful that is. You want to do a white paper? Yes. All right. I'm excited about this white paper. If this is an NBER white paper, um, as they often are, it's a very short white paper, actually. Uh, I, I read it and had like really settled it in for some time. And, and then it's I like just – It's barely a white it's paper. Bar- yeah, it's barely there. But it's interesting. 
It's called Is the Internet Causing Political Polarization? Evidence from Demographics. Um, it's by Levy Boxell of Stanford, Matthew Genskow of Stanford, and Jesse Shapiro of Brown. And basically what they did was they took data from the American National Election Surveys over, over a number of years and they conduct and they constructed multiple uh, indices of how likely somebody is to use the internet. The main one they used and the one I think they trust the most is actually age. Uh, young people are quite likely to use the internet and older people are a whole lot less likely to use the internet. And that is particularly true when you look at social media. So age is a pretty good proxy for practically heavy internet usage. And also we measure it really well. They also create some other indices about um, predicted internet usage, actual recorded internet usage, but, but age is one they're really looking at. And I, I'll just read some of the abstract because it, it hits it it hits it pretty well. And they say, we find that the growth in political polarization or polarization in recent years is largest for the demographic groups least likely to use the internet and social media. Again, it is the most polarization they're finding is among the groups that are least likely to be on the internet. So for example, our overall index in eight of the nine individual measures shows just greater increases for those older than 75 than for those aged 18 to 39. And what they're doing here is they have basically trawled the political science literature for every way of measuring polarization they can find. So they have measures that look at party polarization, which is you know how 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 do you feel about the two political parties? They have measures that look at ideological polarization, which is how do you feel about liberals and conservatives? They look at issue consistency, which is how much do your issue positions line up all on one party or another versus how much are they mixed between the two parties? They've got a lot of stuff in there. And really, in, in eight of the nine measures, I believe the one that, that it does not hold true for is religious polarization. But in eight of the nine political polarization measures, uh, polarization is much weaker among the young than among folks age 75. Now, one thing that they they make a point of saying, and I actually think it's important to draw this out, is that this does not mean the internet does not increase polarization. It does increase – or I shouldn't say it does. It could increase polarization. Evidence there is mixed. What it means is that it is clearly not the strongest force increasing polarization, that among older Americans who are not using the internet, polarization is going up even faster. And that implies that of the basket of things driving rising polarization, uh, the internet is not the top one. One question I have about this is that like people talk about polarization a lot. And I wonder in this context if polarization is really the thing that they mean. I think that when a lot of people say, is the internet causing political polarization? What they mean is, is the internet causing people to vote for Donald Trump? Because like – they find that it is obvious that you don't want someone who, on the one hand, doesn't know anything about policy, but on the other hand, seems like a racist madman. But another lot of other people are like, no, what we want is an ignorant racist madman. Um, I think in strict polarization terms, though, Donald Trump capturing the Republican Party nomination was a step away from polarization, right? Like Donald Trump is a more ideologically moderate figure mm -hmm. than Marco Rubio or Mitt Romney. He's just like a worse, seems like a like a bad guy, right? Like in a, in a way that other people wouldn't. But the like leading things that seem to me to be really bad about Donald Trump, like might start a war by accident or has his kids stealing from the public treasury are like not ideological 
concepts and part of why people inside the non-Trump bubble feel that it's so outrageous that other people are in the Trump bubble is that these problems with, you know, when you put it in other ways, like it's like it shouldn't be a partisan issue that like you don't just like have your moron son-in-law running foreign policy. But like that's exactly the point, right? Like that isn't a partisan issue. But we are still segmented into the world that is like so sick of establishment politics that they think this is a good idea and the world that is, uh, I would say, seems normal to me and feels that that it isn't. You know, that's just sort of my baseline. It's not worry about this research, but in terms of like what kinds of reassurance is this exactly giving us, right? Like when we worry about social media causing polarization, like is polarization really what we so worry about? I have a couple thoughts on this. So one, it's worth saying that this data is pretty much pre-Trump, Absolutely. which is a good thing to note because it's possible things look different at this point. I think there are a couple things worth looking at here, though, and I, I do think this this question of Trump gets to some of them. First, I think it's really important to draw out the point you made. People use polarization as a synonym for things that it does not describe. The thing that I think people mostly use polarization as a synonym for, to even pull it out of the Trumpian context, is a kind of bitterness or anger. When they say politics is becoming too polarized right now, they mean it's becoming too pissed off that everybody hates each other. But that's actually not what polarization measures. It's not a measure of outrage or intensity. It's a measure really of consistency. How much does um, your party affiliation and your ideological affiliation and your issue beliefs align together? And you can have very angry periods in American politics where those things are not true, right? The low ebb of, of polarization in America was in the post-war period, like the 50s, 60s, 70s, which were an extremely fractious time in American politics. I mean, political leaders are being assassinated. We had the civil rights movement. We had the, the, the feminist movement. We had the Vietnam War. But politics was unpolarized because as angry as that period was, as much as you had literally kids being shot dead for protesting on, on campuses, the views on these things were not consistently split up by party, right? You had anti-Vietnam War Republicans, you had all, all kinds of things. So it's very important to talk about like what we are and aren't saying when we discuss polarization. That said, what I do think is useful about this, and, and this goes to your point about trying to think about what might be leading to a Donald Trump, is the internet is a, a shiny new thing. Yes. It's not that new, but certainly Facebook dominating all news coverage. I mean, that is new. When when we, you and I are- when I was coming up in the blogs. Right. But like you and I- readers. Right. You and I were the first generation of sort of internet trained political journalists, right? Like we were on the internet before we were on paper. And there was no social media. It wasn't that long ago. Like it just, right. you got, you got, you you came up through links. Like I emailed Matt Iglesias and was like, I got a, I got a blog post. Um, so this stuff is pretty new and people feel it around them. And they, they go online, they see these angry things are getting put up and they think, ah, like this must be what's driving this terrible political scenario. But Donald Trump was lifted up in the primaries by a lot of people who, as far as we can tell, are not the demographics most bought into Facebook. And so I think what this is telling us to do above all else is sort of get out of the shiny new thing problem where it's like fake news on social media is a new problem. And so because it's a new problem, it's an interesting problem. And so we make it like the only problem we're talking about. I think if you look at this, you you can come up with a couple hypotheses. 
One is that cable news, which right. is extremely big among older Americans, is driving a lot of political polarization. And particularly Fox News, which is extremely big among older Americans, is driving a lot of political polarization. And if you ask me what kinds of things both set the stage for Donald Trump and lifted him, I would say cable news did it. I right. would say that was a huge part of it, particularly among the Republican Party. Talk radio, cable news really created a – a useful ground in which Donald Trump could could take root. Another thing that you might wonder about, particularly for older Americans, and this is a little more complex to talk about, you know, a lot of this me- period of measurement and a lot of the period of rise that we're seeing here, though not the whole rise of polarization, is happening in Obama's presidency. Right. And older people have, let's say, more retrograde views on race. Is it possible that Obama's presidency had a very politically polarizing effect among folks who maybe did not vote for him in the first place as a demographic, right? John McCain won older Americans. And we're just a little more unnerved by the change in racial politics, the rising majority-minority coalition that began to get hyped up and and really activated in the Obama era. And then, of course, there are a million other things you could come up with. But but I think what this is doing is saying that the the tendency to just say it's all social media, that's lazy and yeah. it doesn't fit the, and fit and the I, evidence. And I do think this point about cable is, is really critical because, you know, my whole career uh, been on the internet and it makes an enormous difference if you compare the quality of political news that is on the internet to like the best of print newspaper reporting, which is like often what happens in like chin stroking uh, kinds of dialogues versus if you compare it to cable news, right? If you got – I mean I, I like Chris Hayes' TV show and I like Rachel Maddow's TV show. If you exclusively relied on those two programs for your news and information, I think you'd be in pretty rough shape, you know? And if you if you exclusively relied on a really bad show like Sean Hannity's, like you'd be fucking clueless, you know? And it's it's so much worse than the social media dynamic Can because I- it's because it's like it's not even a Bubble, you are so bought in to like a particular program's philosophy, the storylines that they are covering. Information is presented. It's it's like it's linear, right? Like TV has this just like stream. So like things go by and you don't hear them. You can't really go back in any kind of way. It's not the the analog browsing experience or the digital type one. And if you just look like daytime, you flip on CNN, MSNBC, something like that, they're doing pretty straight news. They're not like giving you a lot of spin and bias, but it's this odd freneticness. It's shallow. It's shallow, but it's also unnerving. Like the world always seems to be falling apart. If you just like watch 60 minutes straight of daytime cable. And as bad as social media is, and it, it can be bad, it is interrupted by a lot of baby pictures, which your your cable news isn't. I'm going to take your point and turn it around on me. I have done a lot of cable news. There was a period of time when I was hosting television shows, a period of time when I was on six, seven, eight times a week. I was on a lot. I was a contributor to MSNBC. I, I It was my job. If you followed – if you decided you were going to learn about politics from Ezra Klein and you followed my cable news work – Versus following my written work, you would have been so much worse informed. And it's not because I wasn't trying hard. It's not even because the shows I was on were bad. It's just 
These are quick four-minute interviews. There is not time to double back on yourself. There's not time if you don't get the right question to go and say, well, here are the parts of my answer that are maybe I'm not that certain about. You maybe need to say something to qualify, but then you get a little voice in your ear that says rap. You are extremely constrained by commercial breaks. You're extremely constrained by what the show decided to cover versus what it didn't decide to cover. There is no space, by the way. Like, and People talk about the issues of analytics. One thing that's really good about social media and, and just about the internet more generally is that if you write a piece that while the plausible total audience for it is not huge, it's like 200,000 people, but that audience is underserved, so they all really like that article, like you could get 200,000 reads on that piece, whereas cable news, you just do not do that. You do not go for niche audiences on cable news. So you also just get a narrower group of things being discussed. There's all kinds of stories that I do um, for, for Vox that I did for the Washington Post before that's just like it, it would be laughable that you would put it on cable news. So it it is bad. I don't mean to make this all about cable news because I, I, as much as I'm, I'm offering that as a hypothesis, I want to say the paper does not go and say this is all about cable news, right? This is, I think, one thing that could be going on. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that I am. It's just cable am, is part of the baseline, yes. right? Before there was the internet, there was like, but particularly before there was Facebook, like we just know in reality that like yes the new york times and the wall street journal were influential media outlets but like so was fox news so was rush limbaugh right like the internet added to an already very uh mixed quality media ecosystem and also i'll just say as, as one as one other point on this one thing they're doing in here is they're use, really using age as a as a proxy for internet usage but if you, you could just use age as a proxy for age right you could just use age to look at age and one interesting thing they're showing is that older Americans have just had a much sharper rise in, in political polarization. It, that's true for party, for ideological polarization, for ideological consistency than younger Americans. And, and I think that, to go to your point about Donald Trump, is interesting too. Um, the Republican Party has become – is much stronger among older Americans. I mean you can really just sl- – like if politics were dominated by the young, it would be overwhelmingly Democratic. If it were dominated by older folks, it would be overwhelmingly Republican. And they are very, very, very polarized and they're polarized. You can come up with a lot of theories and we've been doing a little bit of that. But I think that a, a very simple thing to say is one thing that is setting the the, ri- the context for the rise of someone like Trump is that older Republicans have swung very hard, not just to the right, but to a kind of sealed, hermetically sealed right, a very ideologically, internally party-based consistent right. Um, one measure of polarization they look in here is also feelings towards the other party, um, if, if I was un, if I'm understanding the paper right, uh, and feeling towards your own party, and, and that stuff is very strong. So, you know, one thing that's happening is there are some really worrying trends, a little bit among younger Americans, but more so among older Americans and how they're experiencing politics. And that is leading to very sharp uh, changes in outcomes, particularly in the parts of politics that older Americans dominate, which are Republican Party primaries and midterm elections. And it's also worth noting how new the, the age stratification of American politics is because I realize a, a lot of people um, think that something that's been around for a couple cycles is like an enduring fact of nature. But if you look at the, the exit polls for 2000, obviously a very close election. Uh, but among 18 to 24-year-olds, it was 47-47. Uh, among 65 and over, it was 51-47. So Gore won senior citizens uh, narrowly. Uh, among that's, people, that's fascinating. Among people in the middle, Gore got, 30 to 49, Gore got 48 percent, Bush got 50 percent, right? So 
it's not an interesting result. You know, somebody won, somebody lost, but they were all just a couple points apart from each other. Uh, You fast forward to 2016 and the election is all about age, right? And it's not just that um, Clinton versus Trump was very strongly age polarized, but Clinton versus Sanders was very strongly age polarized Mm -hmm. inside the primary. Trump was the old faction of the old party. Clinton was the more moderate older faction of the younger, more liberal party. And that evolved. You know, you see 2004, 2018, 2012, the, this sort of age stratification increases and increases and increases over time. Uh, but so it's not just that, like, the polarization has happened a lot among uh, senior citizens, as it's depicted here, but that the whole structure of politics has become much more much more age linked uh, than than it used to be. Um, it's, for example, also not true that in the 1960s younger people were particularly anti war. Um, it's true that college campuses were a particular like social focal point of anti war protest movements. Uh, but this strongly age based politics is a, is a very new thing. So when you think about new media consumption that is mostly done by young people. You know, it's it's just like it's it's worth keeping that in mind in terms of like what is even a plausible driver of of anything. You know, if you had some story that was like Facebook caused Bernie Sanders, I don't know that you could find any sort of evidence for that. Uh, but it's at least true that the people who are most likely to vote for Bernie Sanders are also the people who are most likely to like think of going to social media for your news as a normal thing to do. And Trump is, is very much the opposite. One thing that I think is a, is a huge salve to all this is podcasts, which if you listen to podcasts like The Weeds, you're getting incredibly well informed. It's great. Uh, so you should subscribe, uh, rate, send it to your friends. Uh, if you want to come see us live again, that's Vox.com slash Weeds Live, right? Yes. Vox.com slash Weeds Live. Thank you to my co-host, Matthew Iglesias, to Yochi Driesen for being here earlier, to our producer, Fim Shapiro. Um, we miss Sarah Cliff. She'll be back shortly, and so will we. Hold up. 